Struggling to keep track of your story and world? Archivos is for you! More intuitive than a wiki, more extensible than Scrivener, Archivos builds your story bible into your personal, always-on tactical display. Graphical relationship charting, continuity tools, this thing has it all with bonus options for fan engagement and real-time collaboration. Archivos. Story world management done right www.archivos.digital. That's www.archivos.digital. Welcome to The Everyday Novelist. My name is J. Daniel Sawyer, author of nearly 30 books, more than 30 short stories, and numerous articles and scripts and essays, coming to you from up in the crow's nest with my spyglass on this daily voyage through the dicey waters of business, craft, learning, and art in the writing life. Welcome to The Questions, episode 926. Today we find out if we can give an answer twice and have it be just as good the second time as the first time because some yutz forgot to hit record on the recorder. Not that I know who that is. <laughs> Today we hear from Charlie, who asks... Today we hear from Herbert, who asks... What is a good heuristic to determine how much historical research to do up front for a historical novel, or scientific research for a sci-fi? Is it safe to rely on experts who are willing to beta read specifically for their expertise? How do you identify places where not getting it right in the first draft is risking making the entire draft worthless? This is a lot easier with sci-fi. With sci-fi... And you're always going to have the people who read for hard sci-fi, but frankly, most of the audience now is not the ultra-geek set. Some part of me thinks that's a pity, because the ultra-geek set held, or held authors' feet to the fire in ways that made for some more daring literature. But on the other hand, I don't know if I'd have a, a place as a sci-fi writer if they were the majority of the, uh, of the audience now, so, you know. <laughs> the worst review I ever got was on Goodreads for the Resurrection Junket. Um, the Resurrection Junket depends on some uh, research about faster-than-light travel, on chirality and chemistry, and on neuroscience and nanotechnology. And I did a lot of research for that. And I had scientists read it through, and I got right what I needed to get right in order for the story to ask the kind of questions and have the kind of impact I wanted it to have. That didn't stop this guy from Germany tearing me a new asshole on Goodreads with the most vile, angry review I have ever received. Um, I don't know if he was right that I completely screwed up the science so much it wasn't worth reading. It obviously was true for him, but I did the absolute best I could, so I don't lose a lot of sleep over it. But you will get those, and you just have to be prepared. But um, most of the time, the rule with sci-fi is I'll give you one. You got your premise that's really reachy. You want to ground everything else as best you can so that you will... Um, earn the f good faith of the audience to go with you over the horizon. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you demonstrate that they're in capable, competent hands. Now, with historicals, this is a lot worse. Partly because your audience for historicals, they pick their periods because they know them. And they know them well. And the thing with historical novels that everyone is tempted to do, and that a lot of writers do to the detriment of their work, is that we assume as is the normal human thing, that the way we see the world is basically the way everyone else does, too. 
I would say that there are two major errors that I that I see in historical fiction mm-hmm. that are like equal and opposite. Mm-hmm. One is making the assumption that um, everybody in the past had the same attitudes as we do and the same values on sexuality and morality and um, the purpose of government and that sort of thing. And the other is making the assumption that everybody in the past were these backward retrograde rubes that didn't know anything and didn't care about anybody else. Yeah, both of them are untrue. What we... Oh, God. Please... (laughs) Excuse me, I have to go eat the baby. Uh, Hopefully that baby in the background is not too distracting. We in the modern world, in the modern West, the developed world, tend to assume that the people in the past were basically like us, except that they were more sexist and more racist than we are. Not true. The modern Western or the modern developed worldview is called weird by psychologists for a reason. It's not just a cute acronym for Western, educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic. It's actually so historically unprecedented, our worldview, and fairly incoherent um, in a lot of ways, because it's premised upon a cluster of technological and cultural developments that are historically utterly aberrant. Those developments are World War II, the Cold War, mass communications, nuclear weapons, and the birth control pill. You take any one of those away, and our worldview would be vastly different. In fact, as you shave those off, as you step back into time, each, one, each time you shave one of them off, the worldview changes radically. Us, with our temporal conceit, we think, ah, well, it's just because they weren't as enlightened as we are, but that's not the case. People in the past were every bit as smart and enlightened as people in the present. They just knew different things. And, um, and they had, because of the different things they knew, they had different priorities for um, social contract and morality and politics and everything else. There are, of course, certain basic things that humans all have in common. We care about family continuity. We care about our material um, circumstances. We care about morality and honesty and integrity and things like that, but all those things, what we understand those words to mean, are contingent historically. Any person at any point in the past, as you shave those major inventions off, has as much difference in the way that they approach the world from baseline as a Kalahari Bushman has with a Victorian-era industrialist. The world is just that different. And if you want to get historicals right, you have to live and breathe the way that people thought. Um, There's trivial ways this can manifest itself. I'm one of these unforgiving historical readers. I once chucked a book by one of my favorite authors. It was a World War II thriller. And the MacGuffin in the thriller was the development, the secret development of LIDAR, which would have been cool. Except that the word laser wasn't invented for like a decade after the book was set. There, 
there's no possible way you could get to the acronym LIDAR. Even if someone had developed a laser, they wouldn't have come up with the same word for it. They barely had radar as a word, and they certainly didn't in the country in which this was set. And that was enough to make me go, nope, you don't respect my intelligence for this book, I don't respect you as a writer, goodbye, one of my favorite authors. So you don't want to be making those kinds of mistakes. And even more importantly, you don't want to be making the kinds of mistakes that a lot of modern writers make when writing historicals set in feudal cultures or agrarian cultures or anything like that. Literally everything is different. And you have to understand why things work on a starship, so to speak. You have to understand or a farm. But you have to understand why you view the world the way you do. Why would you consider marriage between first cousins incestuous? Nobody did before the eugenics era. Ever. People got a little iffy about it. They're like, yeah, you want to marry your second or your third cousin, but there wasn't a lot of, tr of fast-paced travel, so you're always marrying some degree of cousin. Mm -hmm. And first cousins were, it was a little edgy, but it was very normal. And nowadays, people like lose their shit if you put a second cousin romance in a book. And I know this because I've done this from time to time, and I've gotten the hate mail. But I'm writing in cultures where that's not an undone thing. And I go to the work of showing why it's not an undone thing in the culture where that relationship is happening. And I do that partly because I'm interested in the way different cultures are put together, and partly because I like to annoy my readers. Um, <laughs> I have that failing. If you can get a rise out of someone, you, even, you can get a good hate read, even if they don't like the story. <laughs> but... Um, Getting yourself deep into the mindset, the way the people of not just this time period, but this economic and social class would have thought about morality, society, ethics, everything, is really, really important. It affects everything. It All the things that you and I take for granted about racism being wrong and why... Uh, sorry, 50 years ago it was an active debate, 100 years ago racism was a positive virtue, and through all of history since then, every, uh, before then, except for in cosmopolitan trading societies. And even then, racism was, was a positive virtue, just not the kind of really demonizing racism that you would have seen during the eugenics era. Sexism doesn't come out of nowhere. It's predicated upon the sexual division of labor. It's not about, most of the time, it's not about keeping women down or protecting the patriarchy. It's about maintaining the structure of a society that is struggling desperately for survival. And to do that in an era where you don't have everything automated, you have to divide tasks up between men and women, and it's usually based on who has the strength and wherewithal to do each task. Women being generally bound to hearth and home because they have they're the only ones capable of bearing children there's a certain um a certain range of tasks that they get stuck with in any given society and they're valuable essential tasks that must be done for the civilization to continue in most cases that's things like budgeting and bookkeeping weaving cooking now, there are some civilizations in which the, this gets flipped around, and the distribution of chores between the sexes is different. But you 
almost never find a civilization where the women are the warriors, or doing the mining or the hard labor, because women's bodies on the average are not built for that, and even if they were, those tasks are hazardous enough that throwing women into them endangers the ability of the civilization to continue, because they get killed, maimed, or poisoned. Too young to be able to have enough children to survive to make the next generation. Mm -hmm. This is true everywhere. Now, the other thing is meritocracy is a very unusual thing. It's only existed in a few civilizations. Ours, particularly since the Edwardian era, has been generally fairly meritocratic. And Rome was very meritocratic. The Greeks were not meritocratic. The Arabians were not. The general rule, in fact, is not meritocracy, but nepotism. And the reason that meritocracy took off is civilizations that are meritocratic tend to outcompete civilizations that are nepotistic. And so there's various combinations of permissible nepotism versus imperative meritocracy in different civilizations, but only the Romans and the late Westerners elevated meritocracy to a cardinal virtue. And little things like this change everything. They change everything about your relationship with animals, about what uh, empathy means, about what's the difference between noble sacrifice and mercy and what, and what constitutes treachery. In a lot of civilizations, being soft-hearted was a treasonable offense. Because if you were soft-hearted to the wrong kind of person, you were endangering the lives of all your countrymen. So, there's a lot going on there. Now, in every era, you do have your renegades, who are what we would think of as further ahead than their contemporaries. But they're not going to be further ahead on everything. They'll be further ahead on one thing. And that one thing you can use as a, um, as a grounding point for your reader Gail Carriger does this wonderfully in the first three Parasol Protectorate books. Alexia Terabody is a Victorian feminist. And as such, she has no problem forging her own path and to hell with the expectations of the men around her. But in every other sense, except for those where the uh, habits of the magical creatures she's raised among have altered her attitudes to be a little more contemporary... In every other sense, she is a woman of her time. And so Gail does a very good job of balancing that. That's hard to do, but it is a way to get an entree, to create a point of sympathy with your readers, to journey with you through this very unsympathetic culture. Mm -hmm. To go another way, the first season of HBO's Rome did a really good job of showcasing, well, for the most part, of showcasing Roman morality as it was. There's a few exceptions, especially around the strange modesty taboos that the Romans had, which that series completely breaks for the, ser for the sake of having more TNA. Um, basically, Roman matrons would never, never, even when having sex, they would never bare their breasts to their sexual partners because that was seen as a perversion because you were bringing them the motherly aspect into the sexual relationship. And that was very, very not done among the Roman upper classes, except when they were deliberately trying to be perverse. So that was a taboo that they would break. There was lots of nude bathing, but it wasn't generally mixed, um, just like in uh, pre-World War II Japan. 
Mm-hmm. Same kind of thing. Uh, they didn't have this, the same modesty taboos about breasts, but the mixed bathing thing was a big deal. Mm-hmm. So you want to understand why, how your culture in question views the world and why. What constraints were they under that created that worldview? Because the morality superstructures and worldviews that cultures arrive at are trade-offs that we make between those things that all humans want and those things that are made necessary for the maintenance of a civilization in a given historical, geographical, political, and technological context. So, yeah, historicals are thorny. and But the better you get them, if you can also tell a good story, the more longevity you're likely to have. Uh, Robert Graves in I, Claudius, and Claudius the God spotted that there was a great overlap between Victorian uh, merchant-class prudery and upper-class Julian family morality. And so, because he was writing in the 1940s when Victorian prudery was still very much the order of the day, he was able to cheat by making all his characters... Um, the kinds of hypocritical prudes that you would see on the street every day. And it worked really well. And by doing that, he was able to showcase other aspects of Roman culture in ways that other authors haven't really gotten away with because he tr- generated so much sympathy by going a little overboard to the point of, om- of being a little bit inaccurate with his, uh, with his um, Victorian prudery in the Julian family. But that element was there and it drove a lot that happened in that family. And so it worked in that context. So that's what you want to do. You want to eat, sleep, and breathe the mindset of the culture you're in. And you want to look for points of connection where you can bring your readers into it. But yeah, the contemporary Western point of view is so strange that those of us who read and get value from ancient literature and philosophy are unusually uncomfortable because, uh, in general, in everyday life, because we understand how transitory all of these eternal values people are fighting culture wars and political wars over really are. And uh, it makes you look at everything a lot differently. And that gift, which has a lot of wonderful side benefits culturally, that gift of being able to see how transitory your own culture is, is one of the things that you're giving to your readers when you write good historical fiction. It's one of the reasons readers come to good historical fiction, is they want a different world. They don't just want the different costumes. So, that's, uh, that's what I got for you. Thank you very much for the very fertile question, and we'll see you tomorrow. The Everyday Novelist is written by J. Daniel Sawyer and presented by J. Daniel Sawyer and Kitty McKeon and is produced by Artistic Whispers Productions Incorporated. The text is copyright 2021 J. Daniel Sawyer and the production is copyright 2021 Artistic Whispers Productions Incorporated. This podcast is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License and all other rights are reserved to their respective owners. Join the conversation, submit a question, leave a comment, or a creative death threat, or find me at jdsawyeronminds.com or hit me at feedback at jdsawyer.net. We can't do it without you.